Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 12 as we continue reading through this great narrative of God's work as He established the church. I want to read to you from chapter 12 uh, in its entirety. Listen to the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he, then he departed, went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, 
whose other name was Mark. This is the Word of God. Thanks be unto God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that you, by the power of your Spirit, would, as we ask every week, Lord, do that work in us, that you would, through your Word, make us more like you, Lord, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions. May we be a people pleasing to you in all those ways. I pray this morning that as we sit, all of us, under the authority of your Word, that you would bless us. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. What happens when the gospel starts to make inroads into places and among people who had once been excluded from its reach? What happens when the gospel's entry into those places and among those people starts to call into question some of the long-held and firmly rooted social orders that have been in place for decades or even centuries? To put it plainly, what happens when the hood comes to church, or when the poor come to church, or when people with disabilities come to church, or when political opposites come to church, or when the nations come to church? The answer is that some people inside and outside the church community will go on the attack will seek to hinder, or in the case of the text in front of us, destroy the work of the gospel. We already saw this in the actions of the circumcision party in the last story. Paul is going to address that crowd in some of his letters, revealing the danger of their beliefs and tactics to the good of the church in pursuing ethnic unity. But our text today presents an attack from the outside, an attack from one in authority and power who sought to use that authority and power to destroy the work of the gospel. And it's clear from the text that he was doing it to gain favor with others who also wanted to destroy the work of the church. In verse 3, we read again this, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. The church in Jerusalem, because of its commitment to maintaining many of the Jewish customs, had enjoyed some periods of peace and rest from conflict with the other Jewish leaders. But now that the gospel had done its intended work of drawing the nations into the family of God, and now that the same gospel, that same gospel was beginning to push at the foundations of those barriers that kept Jews and Gentiles separated from each other, the church in Jerusalem began to lose favor with the Jewish leaders, and that in turn brought conflict from those with whom those leaders had political connections. The church was finding out just how entrenched opposition to the kingdom of God really was. The kingdom that says that in Jesus, the nations are His heritage, and He is Lord. And I want to suggest to you that 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 opposition, that opposition to the kingdom of God hasn't left the world after 2,000 plus years since the coming of Christ. And if the last few years have taught us anything, it is how deeply divided 
we yet remain across all of the lines of distinction that the Bible presents to us. And there are still enemies of the church, enemies of the gospel that work to hinder or destroy the work that God is doing. And here's why that should not surprise us. It's because we still have an enemy, a spiritual force of darkness that goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is defeated through the death and resurrection of Christ from the dead, but he has not yet been thrown out of this world. Thus, he is still on the prowl, still opposing the kingdom of God, still blinding people's minds from the truth of who Christ is, still working to undermine the unity of the church across ethnic lines. No, Herod's, Herod's persecution, Herod's attack in the text before us isn't a one-time event that happened long ago. The spirit of that persecution in the text before us, that spirit of that persecution and the actions that flow from it are still in the world. And so how do we stand up? That's the question. How do we stand up in the face of that opposition? How does the church meet this entrenched opposition to the gospel? The answer is that we have to place our trust in the truths that are presented to us in this text, truths about God, truths about His commitments to us in the face of opposition. Brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you this morning, the opposition is real, but so is the God who has called us into His kingdom, the very kingdom that is being opposed by many in this world. The God of the kingdom is real. And so is His commitment to us as we face down attacks from those outside and those inside the church. And this story, this story is presented to us. It's presented to us as an encouragement, encouragement not to give up in the face of the opposition, not to retreat from our calling, to, to compromise with evil, but rather to trust in our God and to trust in His commitment to us even in the face of all the opposition. So what truths are presented to us in this story that we are called to trust in concerning our God? Well, first of all, brothers and sisters, I would encourage us this morning that this story encourages us in the face of opposition to trust in prayer, in the face of opposition to trust in prayer. It's no accident that when God's people come face to face with opposition and the sometimes violent use of authority that flows from it, that we turn to prayer. Read the book of Acts, read the Bible on the whole, and you will see believers consistently turning to the Lord in prayer when they are confronted with opposition, when the powers of this world wield their authority against us in an attempt to hinder or destroy the work we have been called to. It is not only right, but necessary that we turn to our King. It is necessary that we turn to the one who is actually King of kings and Lord of lords. And this commitment to prayer acknowledges our belief that the world does not belong to the powers of this world. It didn't belong to Herod or the religious rulers or to the Caesars of the early church period, and it does not belong to presidents or dictators or the religious rulers of this day. And so when we go to God in prayer, when we are under attack, or when our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are under attack, we are acknowledging that we know who rules the world. We are acknowledging that we are petitioning Him to make His rule present in the particular situations of opposition that we are facing. And this is why believers 
the believers in our story, this is why they were earnest, that is sincere and intense in their prayers. Their prayers were earnest because they believed that God could act and they believed that God would act. They weren't trying to twist God's arm to act in the ways they wanted Him to, but, but to act on Peter's behalf, on the church's behalf, in accordance, with, in accordance with His own will. And I want to ask us a question this morning. Are we earnest in our prayers as we stare down the opposition that we are facing in our day as we preach the gospel, as we pursue the kingdom of God and the work, and, and as we work for its advance among the nations and for the unity that it calls us to in Christ? Are we praying earnestly for God to act, or are we just complaining to God? Are we just complaining to God? Complaining about the difficulty, complaining about the people who we believe are causing the difficulty, complaining about our own suffering. Don't mishear me. Complaint is a part of prayer. Taking our complaints to God is right and good. And God is gracious to us and that He hears our complaints and He responds to them. But these believers were not stuck in complaint mode. Did you hear me? They were not stuck in complaint mode. They were earnestly seeking God to act, to act on Peter's behalf, and that is because they believed that God could and they believed that God would. And I'm not suggesting here that God's actions were going to be exactly what they wanted. I'm su- I, I, and, and I'm not suggesting the same to us, but I am encouraging us to believe that God's hands are not tied, to believe that He wants His kingdom to advance, to believe that He sees the circumstances of His church as, they, as we face down opposition, and that He will do among us what leads to the advance of His kingdom among us and through us. When we believe this, we pray differently. When we believe this, we pray earnestly. The call here, in fact, brothers and sisters, is a belief and not so much an activity. It is to believe that the God we are approaching is able to act to advance His kingdom, that He's able to deal with the opposition we are facing as we proclaim His gospel in the world. And this means, what this means for us is it means setting aside that unbelief that sometimes grips our hearts when we're facing opposition. You know what I'm talking about. We see evil men and evil rulers get away with all sorts of things, and it can cause us to doubt God's goodness or even His ability to act. Don't say anything. Just say, ouch. We see evil people get away with stuff, and it causes us to doubt God's ability and power to act. And we can start to believe, if we're honest, that in fact the world is really in the hands of those men. So why pray at all? Why pray at all? If it's in their hands, if they get to do whatever they want to do, if they are ultimately determining what happens to us and what happens to the world, then why pray at all? And and, and we either ask that question, why pray at all, or we go to God in prayer and we pray doubtingly because we really don't believe 
that God can act, that He's in control. We just celebrated Juneteenth, the freedom of slaves from American slavery. Amen. I got one witness over here. Can I ask you a question? Do you think we're celebrating that holiday without millions of slaves praying to God to act? You think we're celebrating that freedom without millions of Christian slaves praying to God to act and believing that God would, in fact, one day act on their behalf to actually set them free? (laughs) We have to wrestle with God in prayer. Wrestle to set aside our doubts and to trust God's power to act. Even if it's not on our timetable, even when it's, if, if it's not when we want it to happen, we have to yet go to our God believing that the world belongs to Him and not to the rulers of this world. Because when we have that kind of belief, we pray differently, we pray harder, we pray earnestly, we pray faithfully. The believers' prayers for Peter They were earnest. May our prayers be found to be earnest as well as we look for God to act in our day in the face of opposition to advance the good news of His kingdom in this world. So in the face of opposition, we're called to trust in prayer, but we're also called to trust in God's rescue. While we're not promised rescue, while we are not promised rescue from every difficulty and challenge of life, When God does rescue us, He has a purpose in mind in that rescue. And I want to suggest that the purpose is the strengthening of our faith. Notice in verse 9 that Peter isn't actually sure what's happening. He's unsure if the events of his rescue are even real. We read in verse 9 that he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, we might forgive Peter for his uncertainty and that things are happening fast in the narrative, right? We can almost understand his lack of clarity about the events he sees in the middle of the action. But notice what happens after Peter is led out of the prison. He goes to the home of Mary and Martha, goes to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and a slave girl named Rhoda answers the door. She answers the gate. He's knocking at the gate. She comes. She answers the gate. She realizes that it's Peter. She's so overcome with joy that humorously she leaves Peter at the gate. And you can see Peter standing like, standing there like, um, I just escaped from prison. People are looking for you, boy. Open the gate. But what I want you to notice is how those inside respond to the news that Peter has escaped. In verse 15, we read, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, watch this, it's his angel. That's right. The people who have been praying earnestly for God to act on Peter's behalf, upon hearing the news that Peter is at the gate, don't believe that it's actually Peter. In fact, they are more convinced that it's his angel, Peter's spirit that has somehow shown up at the gate, but not Peter himself in the flesh. Why? And you're looking at this and you're saying, what? What's going What? Because even when we're praying for something, we can doubt that God is able to do the things we're asking for. Did you hear me? 
even when we're praying earnestly for God to do something, we can still doubt His ability to actually do it. So what does God do to strengthen our faith? Well, He provides credible testimony to His power to save, to His power to rescue. And many of us who have our faith in Christ, we've seen those moments of deliverance in our own lives, right? There are many of us sitting here today who can testify to God's rescue personally when we were facing opposition of some kind because of our faith. And those rescues, brothers and sisters, those deliverances, those, those moments where God steps in and sets you free from some attack or some opposition that you're facing, those, 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 those moments are meant to be recorded in our memories and deposited into the lives of others by telling them those stories of God's deliverance, of God's rescue, in order that our faith and the faith of our brothers and sisters might be strengthened. Notice that Peter did not keep this story of God's rescue to himself. Rather, he described to those at Mary's house in detail what happened, and then he encouraged them. And then Luke records the story for us so that our faith would be strengthened and encouraged. You know why I have hope of God's kingdom advancing in this world? Why I have hope for the church becoming a more faithful testimony of the unity of the nations under the lordship of Jesus? It is because of the countless stories of God's rescue. It's because of the countless stories of God's deliverance. It's because of the countless stories of God's salvation. Those, those, those testimonies of God's deliverance that have been recorded down throughout history, those, those testimonies of God's deliverance that you've seen in your own life, in your own story, your own testimony, all of those stories speak to God's power, intention, and will to act to advance the good news of His kingdom in this world. I've heard of God's rescue, and I've seen God's rescue in my own life. And every rescue we hear about, every story of God's deliverance, every, every story of salvation that we hear about and experience as God builds His kingdom in the face of opposition is meant to strengthen your faith that He is the God who saves, that He is the God who delivers, so that you don't just stand up here and sing it or stand in your pews and sing it, but so that you actually believe it. So that when the church, or you yourself, are in the midst of opposition, you can turn to your God in prayer, trusting that He hears you in prayer, and trusting that He is the God who rescues, that He is the God who sets free. I said that in prayer we're called to set aside our doubts, yet God doesn't actually leave us to do that work alone. He provides credible testimony that helps us to set aside those doubts through His countless rescues down the corridors of history as well as in our own lives, individually and corporately as His people. And so when we're facing opposition, we're meant to call back to our memories individually and collectively the accounts of God's rescue. You know why they celebrated Passover over and over and over again? Because it was a reminder of what God had done so that they would know that God was present to deliver them now and He would be present to deliver them in the future. We're meant to rest in those events as proof positive that our God is with us, that He will do among us what advances His kingdom. We're going to celebrate God's rescue in a few moments. We're going to celebrate God's setting us free. 
And if we're telling, if we aren't telling each other, if we aren't telling each other those stories and reminding ourselves of what God has done and can do, we will find ourselves hopeless in the face of opposition. We will find ourselves cynical. Anybody out here know what I'm talking about? Anybody know about being hopeless in the face of opposition? Anybody know anything about being cynical? Don't raise your hand. Anybody know anything about being cynical in the face of opposition? Not actually believing that anything can or will happen? Anybody ever been there as you've looked out over the world or looked out over the church? Anybody ever been in that spot where you're like, man, I'm losing perspective and hope? Where do we get What do we regain that perspective, regain that hope? We regain it by reminding ourselves of who our God is, that He is the God of rescue, that He is the God of salvation. And so we're called to tell each other those stories, stories of what we've seen God do in our own life, stories of what we've seen God do in the lives of others, to remind each other of those stories of Scripture where God rescued and delivered His people. Peter wanted the story told. And we should want the stories of our rescue told as well. These stories, brothers and sisters, are important to our ability to stand strong in the face of opposition. Amen? Trust in prayer in the face of opposition. Trust in God's rescue. Lastly, trust in God's vindication. The other thing that we have to trust in the face of opposition as we pursue the kingdom of God is God's vindication of us as we pursue that kingdom. Let me just say it this way. Those who are opposed to God's kingdom, to the advance of His gospel among the nations, and to the unity that that gospel is meant to create among those nations, those who are opposed and remain opposed are going to lose and lose badly. Did you hear what I said? They are going to lose and lose badly. Herod arrogantly believed that his decisions were the final word on the matter. He thought that by killing James and then locking Peter up with plans to kill him too would win him favor among the Jews and likely thought he could squash the Christian movement. He no doubt believed with the religious rulers and religious leaders that they were in control of the unfolding events of history and that they could determine by their own actions the outcome of things. But what they didn't understand, what the religious rulers have forgotten, even though advised by one of their own, Gamaliel in Acts chapter 3, is that no one can stand in the way of what God is doing in the world. When God purposes to act in His world, His will will be done. This is why, in point of fact, you are taught to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No one and nothing can stand in the way of God's purposes in this world, and those that do will ultimately find themselves standing in the way of the one whose greatness knows no bounds, whose knowledge is unfathomable, whose judgments are unsearchable, whose majesty cannot be rivaled, whose power cannot be contained. They will come face to face 
with the one of whom it is said in Isaiah chapter 40, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel. Whom did he consult? Who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Herod thought that he was something until he came face to face with the greatness of God. He found out that not only did he not have ultimate say over the lives of others, but he did not have ultimate say over his own life. He was taken out of the world for pursuing his own glory and standing in the way of God's glory. And let me tell you why you should take heart from that part of the story. We should take heart because through faith in Jesus, this God is our God. The God who is great in power, majestic in holiness, the God who judges and determines the paths of the seas and the stars, who rules over the affairs of men, that God is our King. And when His purposes are vindicated, we through faith in Him and those purposes are also vindicated. Can I tell you something? Opposition is going to come on account of our pursuit of God's kingdom purposes in this world. But don't lose hope, people of God. We will ultimately be vindicated for pursuing that kingdom. It is not us who will lose out in the end, but rather all those who have determined to stand in the way of the advance of God's kingdom. Herod thought that he could squash the church by his judgment, but God had the final word a word that was summed up in verse 24. But the Word of God multiplied and increased. <laughs> I wish you all were actually listening to me. But the Word of God multiplied and increased. Herod died, the Word of God kept living. Herod perished, but the Word of God kept advancing. Herod met his end, but the Word of God continues to go on and on and on. And everybody who stands in the way of the movement of the kingdom of God and refuses to repent, they will find that God is the God of the heaven and earth, and He is the God who will advance His purposes in this world. The opposition that you are facing and those who give themselves over to it have an expiration date. Did you hear what I said? The opposition you're facing and those who give themselves over to it have an expiration date. But the Word of God, the gospel of the kingdom, will prevail long after the opposers and long after the opposition is done. So don't lose hope, people of God. Don't, 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 don't believe the lie. The world belongs to God, and His purposes will be advanced in it. I want you to listen to this passage from Revelation 6, beginning at verse 10. 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I read that so that you would hear a truth that God, hear the truth that God is committed to vindicating His saints who suffer for the sake of His kingdom. God isn't blind to what is happening to you. He isn't blind to what is happening to us corporately as His church. No, brothers and sisters, we are not going to receive the full vindication in this life. But God will do things over and over again in this life that point to this future vindication that is coming. And you know that this is true. God removes unjust rulers, exposes unrighteous actions, reverses unjust rulings, punishes evildoers, and we've seen it. The call here is to trust God's track record. Did you hear what I said? It's to trust God's track record, not your own heart. It is to trust what we know to be true about God, what we have seen Him do over and over and over again. And so trust, people of God, that you as His people are going to share in that vindication. Don't believe the lie that the world or your life is going to end without that vindication. <laughs> Amen, people of God. In the face of opposition, we're called to trust in our God, to trust in His commitment to us as His people. And in trusting Him in the face of opposition, He invites us, indeed encourages us, to trust in prayer, to trust in His rescue, and to trust in His vindication. And you know why we have all these? We have them because Jesus Christ gave them to us through His death and resurrection from the dead. The attacks will keep coming. So let's keep trusting in prayer. Let's keep trusting in the rescue of God. And let's keep trusting in His vindication. Amen, people of God. Amen. God, let me pray for us. Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of Your Spirit, give us, give us, give us faith, Lord, to believe. To believe in Your commitment to us as Your people to believe that in the face of opposition, the attacks, all of what we face, Lord, as we pursue and proclaim Your kingdom in this world, help us, help us in the midst of all of that, Lord, to believe, to trust in You and Your commitment. And like these brothers and sisters in the text before us, help us to trust in prayer, to trust in Your rescue, to trust in Your vindication, to know that You are the God who is with us, the God who sees us and the God who goes before us. So we pray, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.